Hello and welcome to the Sports MedCast, brought to you by the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine and the British Journal of Sports Medicine. We are your hosts, Drs. Scott Young and Cole Taylor. What's going on, Cole? Hey, Scott. Good to be here again. Good to talk with you again. It seems like it's been a long time. We've both been through some cross-country moves and a lot of logistics. And of course, I don't know about you, but I've been dealing with an awful lot of fanfare. I mean, I can hardly go anywhere since we released the first episode of the Sports Medcast. Uh, recognition out on the street, fan mail, uh, you name it, it's just been everywhere. So it's, it's good for me just to get back into the studio and get back to work. Yeah, I don't know if you checked the return addresses on those fan letters you've been getting, but I think they're all from your mom. <laughs> And if anybody's recognizing you on the street, it's probably because of the wanted posters. Oh, so, come on. Yeah. Come on. The letters, what, the letters from my mom's pretty accurate, but uh, I keep it clean. No no wanted posters. Oh, sure, buddy. Sure. We all believe you. <laughs> all right. Well, hey, Scott, the last time we were on the Sports Medcast, we talked about heat injury. So what are we going to talk about today? Oh, man, I am super excited about this episode. It's going to be fantastic. So it's the fall season it's getting a little cooler outside, and here in the United States, it's all about football, gridiron football. And what comes with football? Injuries, lots and lots of injuries, unfortunately. And one of those injuries that's on the forefront of both the medical literature and the media is concussions. There's a lot of concussions out there and a lot of talk going on about it. Yeah, there certainly is. And of course, we talk about gridiron football, but these concussions and injuries can happen with other sports as well. We're not leaving out our other football fans from around the world with uh, what we call soccer. But you talked about it being in the news. Uh, For those who haven't followed it, the National Football League, the big American football uh, group here in the United States, just settled with some of their past players regarding a concussion suit for almost $900 million. Uh, So that's obviously been a big story. Yeah, absolutely. And that is a lot of money. I wish I could find some way to get my hands on that. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're not going to get any of that money, Scott. To get that money, you've got to have some you know, long-term issues and cognitive, uh, cognitive decline. Oh, I'll tell you what, Cole, my wife would vouch for a significant cognitive decline on my part over the last several years. So no, no worries there. All right. I've, I've worked with you enough that I can, I can agree with her on that one. Hey, thanks. I appreciate you backing her up on that. No thanks problem. a lot. No problem. Okay, Scott, and since you started talking about concussions, I figured what better place to start than the key points uh, from the Fourth International Conference on Concussion in Sport, which was held in Zurich just last year in November 2012, and of course they released their consensus statement uh, in the springtime. And this was a revision and an update of prior recommendations developed in 2001 in Vienna, 2004 in Prague, and 2008 in Zurich. So there's some great information in here. Scott, you and I both have some experience working with high school and collegiate teams, but what has the uh, Fourth International Conference on Concussion done for you in terms of changing your clinical practice? That's a great question, Cole. But before I answer it, I want to throw a question back at you. How exactly can we get invited to the next concussion (laughs) conference? Because those locations sound phenomenal. I'd like to get a part of that one as well. I have no idea, but if you figure it out, I'm in. Yeah, it sounds good. I'll let you know. But uh, as far as stuff that came out of this uh, consensus conference, I'll tell you what, there's a lot of great pearls in this paper. And we certainly don't have time to cover everything on this podcast. And we do have a great speaker we want to get to. But one thing I do want to briefly mention is the Sport Concussion Assessment Tool. They released the third edition associated with this conference. And I think a lot of folks are familiar with the SCAT 2, which has been out for a while, free, open access. There's even a smartphone, tablet, etc. app that's downloadable for free. Just a phenomenal 
tool to help assess patients on the sidelines and in the clinics. And they took this thing and they modified it. They pared it down from three pages to two, made it a lot easier to use. One page is for sideline assessment for providers at most any level, and then a second page that's more detailed and good for the clinic use. And then they took it even further and made a pediatric version for ages 5 to 12, which has some more age-appropriate questions and helps you really get a better assessment on athletes of that age. So it's really a great tool, and it's still free. I definitely recommend that the folks out there take a look at it if you haven't seen it already. Um, there's a lot of stuff in this uh, consensus paper. Certainly there are some things that haven't changed, but I still have a lot of clinical questions that I hope we're able to answer today. How about you, Cole? All right, Scott, you've made some great points there with regards to the SCAT-3, how they've made it more streamlined, more efficient to use. And, of course, I appreciated that they got rid of that comprehensive score from the SCAT-2. I never really knew what to do with that. My, my patient would score a 87 or a 91, and I just had no idea how to use that information. The other Absolutely. thing that I've just really enjoyed is simply the, gaining a better understanding of concussion. And as the years have gone by, we've certainly developed a better understanding as a whole. We now know that there is this altered membrane conductivity occurring. There's altered glucose metabolism. There's altered protein expression and changes in exonal function and uh, regional cerebral blood flow. And all of this is important because if these changes are happening at a cellular and functional level, it, it illustrates the importance of keeping these athletes out until they've fully healed or fully recovered from the concussion so that they don't sustain uh, a second more severe injury. And so, Scott, I also have some questions, and I think it's time for us to go ahead and take this to our expert and, and find out more information about concussions. So, Scott, why don't you go ahead and take it away and introduce our guest speaker. All right. Well, I'm really excited to introduce our guest today, Dr. Jeffrey Kutcher, who is the director of Michigan Neurosports the team physician for the University of Michigan and the director of the NBA concussion program. Dr. Kutcher, thanks for being with us today. We're really excited about this episode. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. Excellent. So first thing we're going to do here is just uh, present a little bit of a case, and then we'll, we'll fire some questions at you and see if you can enlighten us a little bit on how to manage these tough patients. So let's say we're working in a clinic setting, and we've got a 16-year-old male that presents with headache and nausea. He had played a high school football game or gridiron football game the night prior and had been tackled hard several times, wasn't feeling great during the game, but was never really pulled out. He went home and then woke up this morning uh, feeling pretty rough, complained to his mom that he just felt kind of swimmy, really wasn't feeling himself, so she brought him into the doctor. So when we're looking at this kid, I mean, I think we all know how to do a good history and physical exam. And, you know, in history, we're looking for the the history of the present illness and the symptoms and that kind of stuff. And then from a physical exam, we know to look for focal neurologic deficits, but really like what's the high yield HMP type things we should be looking for to trigger potentially the diagnosis of concussion and possibly giving us an idea of how long this is going to last. Well, you know, I think it starts with the concept that a chief complaint of you know, headache and nausea is fairly nonspecific in understanding the other things that could potentially be causing his complaint. Uh, even the setting of playing football the night before and receiving a couple of hard tackles, I think we still have to step back and understand that the first step of the process is really doing a complete comprehensive neurological history. Uh, and what that means is essentially looking um, not only at the symptoms that are being described, uh, but the timing of them, the mechanism behind the things that actually led to the symptoms, and really dissecting probably this aspect of, of 
the history will be more detailed uh, and more involved than any other chief complaint you're going to get in a primary care or sports medicine clinic. The neurological history requires very, very uh, detailed questions. So, for example, I would want to know specifically what were the hits that this person took? What position was he playing? What part of the game uh, did this occur? Were they close in proximity temporally? Um, was it a head-to-head? -head? Was it head-to-ground? Um, really need to dissect the mechanism uh, of injury, first from the patient's perspective, uh, but obviously okay. somebody who is, is concussed as having mental status issues, uh, they may not be able to describe the event uh, as well as you would like. So then you would also, A, you would use that as a clue, uh, that if they were unable to make those very specific descriptions uh, of the hits themselves, that there may have been a mental status issue uh, surrounding the hit. But it's always great to, to ask uh, for witness accounts. If, he's, if he's, he or she is there with a parent, uh, athletic trainer, or somebody who saw the injury, you want to get their perspective on things. Um, this is actually in some ways very similar to histories we do around seizures and epilepsy. You want to get not only the patient's perspective, but witnesses' perspective of what happened. That's great. That's a great point. I, but and when, then when you're asking these folks and the patient themselves, what are some things that really set off a red flag in your mind, like, oh, this is pretty concerning? Well, so first thing is behavior. Um, you know, was this person's ability to interact in the sporting environment or just socially uh, interfered with in any way? So, again, people that knew uh, the patient prior to injury can be very helpful in, in setting that up. Um, so you want to ask, you know, were they being themselves? Uh, did they miss assignments uh, athletically? Uh, did, did they not understand what was going on in the game? Uh, that's, I think, a very good clue and something you want to you look for uh, right off the bat. Now, it's very common, um, of course, that uh, patients will tell you, or at the, at the time of the injury, they'll say, oh, you know, I'm fine, I'm, not, I'm feeling great, let's go keep playing. Um, and we have to keep in mind that these individuals aren't always just hiding their symptoms. It's actually quite common that a concussed person just doesn't know they're concussed. So it really mm -hmm. falls back, again, on observation of their behavior. You know, how are they performing um, as, as compared to their baseline? Dr. Kutcher, that's some great points there. That made me think a little bit about actually being on the sideline and managing or, or at least recognizing some of these uh, concussion episodes. One, I, I have two specific scenarios I want to ask you about. One is for the athlete that does come to you with complaints, and the complaint is simply headache, and that's the only complaint. If he's not having any other symptoms, he can point to a specific hit perhaps where the headache started. Is that enough for you? What is sort of your threshold with regards to uh, d diagnosing a concussion? And then the second scenario is, and I've seen this several times, where a player will uh, be involved in a hard hit, and then there's sort of a temporary disorientation. Perhaps they point towards the wrong sideline. Perhaps they kind of have a hard time getting back up. But then after a minute, they pop up, they get to the sideline, and then at that point, they, they appear normal. They're able to answer all the questions appropriately. They don't complain of any uh, symptoms. How do you manage that patient? And, and from that point forward, do you also call that a concussion? Oh, those are two great questions for sure, right? They come up all the time. I think the first thing I'll say is let's step back for a moment 
and describe what we mean by concussion, the term itself. Um, my own take on it is I think of concussion as the clinical syndrome that's produced by the injury, right? Think of uh, the clinical stroke that's produced by ischemia, for example, right? Sure. So in the first setting, when you have somebody who comes to you with just a headache, right, you should understand that, sure, that could be a concussion, but it could be other things. Um, if it's just a headache by itself, the onus is on the medical staff um, to really prove that it's something else other than concussion uh, before you let them continue to play or participate uh, in, in that activity. So ultimately, um, it does depend on the situation. It depends on the available resources. It depends on how well uh, the person who's evaluating the, the patient uh, knows that individual patient, right? If they, do they have a headache history? Are there things that would make you think this is more of a pure headache syndrome? But always err on the side of being conservative, uh, especially when we understand the concept that somebody who's concussed might not have a great um, grasp of, of, of recent history and recent events, and so there may have been a big hit they don't remember. Now they just have a headache. So on the sidelines, somebody presents with a headache, I think you have to treat that as concussion at the time uh, unless you are comfortable making a, a, an alternative diagnosis. I think that's very, very important. Okay. Um, in the second case, uh, somebody has a brief change in mental status or a brief physical um, sign or symptom of concussion that, that, that clears up quickly. Uh, this gets at the concept of are there symptoms and signs of, of brain dysfunction that can be just from the physical force itself and not from the physiological injury uh, that would be brought on by that force, right? So the, the difference being, uh, take, for example, you wake up in the morning uh, and your hand is numb because you were sleeping on your hand, and you shake it out, and that numbness goes away, right? That's, that's nerve dysfunction. That's transient dysfunction of a sensory nerve that restores back to normal um, with mechanical intervention. Uh, that doesn't mean you have carpal tunnel syndrome. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you don't have pathology to the nerve. Sure. Uh, same kind of concept here. If you have a transient, uh, a force applied to the brain that causes a transient neurological dysfunction, as a result of the mechanical force and not necessarily of that physiological injury, do we consider that concussion? On one level, on the pathophysiological level, I think it's completely reasonable to say, no, that's not necessarily concussion. The problem is there's no way that we have available to us uh, to, to demonstrate that or to prove that. So we therefore treat that like a concussion and let time tell you whether it was or not. And that's one, I think, very important pearl is this concept that when we're either on the sidelines of games or in clinics um, shortly thereafter, that we are diagnosing concussion at that moment, yes or no, yes or not. Um, right. Sometimes it's obvious. Most of the time there's some question, you know, to, to a certain degree. So we shouldn't be concerned about the idea of, well, you know what, let's, I'm not going to call this concussion now, but let's hold you out of the game and see what happens over time. Hmm. Especially in that headache scenario, right? I mean, even, you know, so you, get a, you get a hit, you get a headache, well, that could be a traumatically induced migraine. How do you know? 
Well, sometimes you're not going to figure that out until that pattern has been established uh, over you know multiple weeks or multiple headaches over a season. So the idea that concussion is this all or no all or nothing diagnosis that we make at the moment of of, of injury, I think needs to be uh, reconsidered. And only after time and following that patient serially can we really get a good idea of what that process was. Oh, that's great. That's very interesting. And maybe this is a little bit of an easier question. So if we take a patient in the same setting that has a clear concussion and it's Friday night lights, the game's ending at 10, 10.30, something like that, and we have a kid with concussion, we often see in these recommendations that they should be observed for a period of time. Well, it's, it's 10.30, it's 11 o'clock. This kid wants to go home and go to bed. Just a, a quick question for you. Is, is that okay? Does that kid need to be observed for a few hours? Can he go to sleep? Does someone need to stay up with him during a time where he would otherwise uh, be crashing out, so to speak? I do think there needs to be a period of observation um, following injury. My own personal time frame is four hours. Um, that's not based on any published data. That's just based on clinical experience. Uh, and the concept that after that time period, uh, really the chances of a, of a, a significant hematoma, hemorrhage, intracerebral process ongoing, uh, that, that, that chance is, is pretty darn small uh, to the point of, yeah, you know, you want to be observed uh, past that time period. Okay, so, so, so just to be just to be clear on that, if the kid sustains that injury around nine o'clock at night, you're going to recommend that somebody stays up with them until about one a.m. at least, observing for behavior changes. That's correct. Okay. That's great. So now we kind of have an idea on making the diagnosis, or at least giving some time for the diagnosis to develop. Um, once we do make that diagnosis of concussion, I think a lot of us have heard of cognitive and physical rest. But what does that really mean? Are we going to put these folks in a sensory deprivation tank for a couple of days and then bring them out and see how they're doing? I mean, how do we implement that practically and how long should we be doing it for? Is it really, is it influenced by how severe their symptoms are or how do you make that decision? Yeah, this is one area of concussion management that uh, is, is very complex and very subtle at the same time. And it's one thing that I think I see most consistently um, being misused, misinterpreted, and really at the detriment of, of patients. Um, and so, for example, if we took any human, uh, let alone a, a young, active, athletic human, um, and said, don't do anything physical, uh, do very, very little cognitive, I mean, just basically lay around and do nothing, uh, right. and then check back with uh, these people a week later and tell me how you're feeling, right? <laughs> really? um, that intervention, our very intervention of rest, even in somebody who's not injured, is going to create sleep problems, headaches, mood, concentration, you name it. Hmm. So we have to understand that the minute we start that process, we're starting a clock, right? And in some people, that clock is two days, three days, they're going to start feeling some symptoms. And some people, it's going to be two or three weeks or maybe even a couple of months. But almost in every case, uh, human beings do not like complete uh, deprivation of the sensory environment or... or physical or cognitive tasks. Hmm. So I, I never uh, recommend that somebody go to that extreme. I do feel that there is um, the need for uh, consideration of two different types of rest. There is sort of the acute rest, which really there's a, a period within you know, a day or two or three where basically just normal life hurts, 
right, where sure. people are laying in bed in a dark room. It's very, very similar to somebody who has a, um, a very acute migraine headache. Uh, in that scenario, yeah, I mean, it's, it's human nature to do as little as possible. But if you can go about normal you know, activities of daily living um, in, a, in a reasonable way, then rest in that scenario becomes one of avoiding the extremes of exertion. So that's when you don't want to uh, work out. You don't want to participate in, in sporting activities. You don't want to take the ACT or the SAT. But you certainly also uh, want to do something, right? So I tell people it's okay to use the computer. It's okay to text. It's okay to watch TV or, or read. Um, even if it makes you feel a little uncomfortable to do so, I would only not do those activities if it really makes you feel a lot worse. Uh, do you do you have some sort of uh, objective? Do you give them like a zero to ten scale? Say, okay, if your symptoms are at a two, if you do activities and your symptoms go above five, that's where you should stop. Do you give them something like that, or do you just let them sort of determine where that threshold is to back off? There are different approaches to that, and I think that really depends on the patient in front of you. Some people really respond well to having numbers and and want that structure. Others will take that structure and those numbers and uh, attach too much value to them, mm. right? So you worry between, you know, it's a three and, oh, now it's a three and a half. And, you know, I'm like, well, <laughs> you have to really play that by ear. And sometimes that's sort of the art of, of morality is understanding uh, the psychology part of it, right, is, is when do patients respond well to that type of approach versus a very... Uh, sort of more, more ambiguous, um, softly described approach. There's not one that fits everybody. Uh, and, and understanding uh, that aspect of taking care of these patients is incredibly important. Hmm. All right. I'm wondering, um, just kind of as we discuss some of these uh, cases, we, we see some schools or some teams utilizing uh, neuropsych testing. Specifically, you hear a lot about impact testing as one of those modalities. I'm just wondering if you could, and we don't have time obviously to dive into this into full detail, but what, what really is the utility of that type of testing? And if a school or a team has the funds, is that something that they should definitely invest in? Or if a school does not have those means, is, are there certain cases where they should look into that? Or do you have an opinion on this? Sure. Uh, great question. I think uh, first thing I'll say is I have a, a sort of personal definition or, or I make the discriminating point between neuropsychology and neurocognitive testing, right? Sure. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Neuropsychology implies there's some psychological component, um, whereas neurocognitive testing is simply gathering information about uh, cognitive performance in, in some sphere. So the, the baseline tests that... Um, many are, are familiar with, be it the impact computerized test or others, are essentially neurocognitive testing, which uh, does have a role to play. Uh, I think that role is best described as a portion of the physical examination in reality. It's an extension of our ability to examine brain function in, in a living person. Um, it should never be treated as a diagnostic test it should never be treated as a return-to-play decision-making tool, uh, mainly because there are so many things that can affect performance on these uh, tests. Uh, and understanding that aspect and what's going on with that patient um, 
the physician caring for the patient can then put that information in perspective, uh, just as they would any other physical examination tool or finding. So in essence, I, I think it, it does have a role to play. I would say that we need to be cautious that baseline testing is collected appropriately because it's really hard to get good baseline data, meaning controlling for the environment, controlling for motivation, controlling for um, the, the sort of external factors that can uh, affect performance. And then once you get that data, it's really easy to misuse it. And it should be used as part of a comprehensive concussion program and not as the standalone concussion program. And I can tell you in the United States right now, uh, from what I see, it is used um, far more often as the concussion program, and that's all people do. They feel a sense of, um, you know, we can do this now. We can, we can manage this injury because we have this tool, and they forget about the rest of it. So I really would caution people to use it um, correctly. Okay. And as we talk about patients that are a little bit more difficult to manage and they're taking a little bit longer in their recovery time, at least in the Zurich guidelines, it mentions taking a multidisciplinary approach. In a clinical setting, let's say we're taking Scott's example from the beginning and you're seeing this patient in clinic, and now his symptoms have lasted a little bit longer than you expected, and now you've been instructed to follow a multidisciplinary approach. Can you talk about exactly what that means? Where should we be sending that athlete? How should we be coordinating those visits, and, and what does that entail? Sure. So I think uh, first thing to note is deciding whether this, any one case, uh, is involving a prolonged concussion or now we have a post-concussion syndrome. I think that's a very important distinction. And it has nothing to do with timing, nothing to do with, with four weeks or six weeks or two months or three months. Those are just arbitrary numbers. It has everything to do with whether that physiological injury is over or not, right? That, I think, sets up uh, the basic approach to these patients. In other words, do they need continued rest and avoidance of activities, or do we start really turning that paradigm on its head and introducing both physical and cognitive activities more as a rehabilitation process. Making the determination uh, is, is critical, complex, um, and is best done by, by people who have sort of a comprehensive approach to brain function and brain health. The multidisciplinary uh, aspect of this really speaks to the different ways in which brain injury and brain diseases in general can present, right? You can have people who have um, majority of their symptoms are, are migranous in nature, maybe they're cervicogenic in nature, there's a vestibular component, there's a visual component, there's attention, there's sleep. All these things are really just different manifestations of, of brain dysfunction. And so relying on any one specialty or any one uh, tool that looks at just one of these pieces is ignoring the rest of it. So that's where neurologists really come into play here as, as sort of the, the model, it's really, really the primary care physicians for the brain, right? I mean, mm -hmm. people that, that understand all of these things together. Um, and the primary care physician as well has that same sort of important role to play of coordinating all these different functions and understanding that you know, not every concussion is going to respond to vestibular therapy. Not every concussion, um, you know, needs to be medicated in a certain way or, or, or what have you. 
Um, so in, in essence, it really just speaks to the complexity of the brain that we need to have a multidisciplinary approach. So, Dr. Kutcher, would you say for the average provider out there, m- much like myself, that it's not unreasonable to watch these uh, patients for a week or so, you know, talk about some of these rest ideas, you know, talk about the threshold for backing off and things like that and give them some time. But then if, they prolo- if it lasts for longer than 7 to 10 days and they're still having symptoms or they're developing more symptoms, instead of trying to hash some of this stuff out on my own, I should definitely consider referring to a neurologist or the local concussion expert or concussion center or something along those lines. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. Uh, everybody's going to have their, le- their comfort level. Um, and given the number of these injuries, you know, I, th- I think uh, the job of myself and, and you and, and everybody else is, is to try and increase that comfort level uh, of the primary care physician who's going to see the majority of these cases. Um, sure. So I, I think we need to take that very seriously and, and, and raise that bar up as high as possible. Um, I would also say for anybody who's taking care of sort of these acute injuries, either you know at the time of the event or the next day or that week in clinic when it's returned to play decision-making time, is, is step back uh, and, and as a clinician, not just consider uh, the injury in front of you, but step back and consider that person's lifespan, basically, right? So you want to consider their past medical history, for sure, their family history, sure but also looking forward at their risks going forward. You know, is this somebody who got a concussion uh, playing soccer or playing football? There's a difference there. Sure. Uh, expectations going forward. Um, what level are they at in their sport? What do they want to get out of their sports in the future? And So I think we owe it to our patients to not just consider this injury that's in front of us, but really uh, overall take a good look at their brain health and give them the best possible recommendation uh, about you know, management in the future, um, looking at both the risks and the benefits from playing sports. That's excellent. And this is obviously a very complicated topic that we can only scratch the surface of here. But let me ask, oh, you know, as a, a sports provider, and I see some of these things, and uh, some folks out there probably see some concussions as well, and are a little uncomfortable but they want to learn more. They're interested in doing better for their patients and providing better care themselves. Where can somebody go to find out more information or to get a little more training on this specific injury and how to manage it? Well, a couple of suggestions. I mean, one, you mentioned the, uh, the Zurich consensus statement that was published this past spring, um, uh, the fourth edition of that statement. I would start with that document. But okay. also, uh, you can go to the papers that were written um, that went along with that one consensus statement. There was a series of, I don't know, 10 or 12 papers or so, uh, each one taking a more in-depth look at a particular aspect um, of sports concussion. I think that's a good place to start. I would then look at uh, the various academic organizations, whichever one I happen to belong to, look at their national meeting and see what concussion programming uh, they might have at their national meeting or what CME activities they might have. Uh, I know, for example, that the MSSM every year has some concussion programming, and so does the ACSM, and so does the American Academy of Neurology. Uh, I can tell you uh, today, actually, I'm prepared to, to announce that the American Academy of Neurology has committed uh, to starting a standalone sports concussion meeting 
that will be this next July 2014. Uh, the goal of this meeting is to be sort of the one clearinghouse um, a meeting that neurologists, sports medicine doctors, athletic trainers, neuropsychologists, uh, researchers, you name the profession, we want to have basically a meeting that people, everybody goes to um, to find out everything they need to know about sports concussion. That's phenomenal. That's awesome. I actually hadn't heard about that. So it's in July of this uh, next summer. Where is it going to be at? Do you know yet? So, yeah, you haven't heard about it because actually the first person I told outside of the. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, we're announcing groundbreaking news on the Sports Medcast, folks. It seemed seemed relevant. Um, (laughs) We don't know uh, for sure where it's going to be. Uh, There are two uh, cities that are are, um, sort of uh, down, down to the final. Uh, category there, and it will be a city in the sort of center of the United States. That's great. Well, Dr. Kutcher, we can't thank you enough for taking the time out to talk to us today and really giving us some great pearls on how to manage these these tough patients. We're definitely looking forward to learning a lot more about it and really doing better for our patients in the future. Thanks so much. Are you welcome, Scott. Thank you, Cole. Uh, You guys are doing a great job. Keep it up. Thanks again. Thanks. Appreciate that. Yep. Well, I certainly enjoyed that, Scott, and I can imagine that our listeners did as well. If you didn't get something out of that, I I don't know what to tell you. So we're coming to the conclusion here. It's time to come up with some key points, some things that we've really taken away from that discussion. I know it kind of seems silly. He gave us so much great information, and he's so uh, intelligent in this topic. But just simply that four-hour rule that he talked about earlier of observing people after injury, because I've struggled with that with those 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night injuries, and now I can just kind of stick to that. So that wasn't groundbreaking information, certainly, but I think it's going to help me uh, moving forward. I, I really sure. enjoyed his his uh, definition when, when he was talking about the threshold, or not just not definition, but when he was talking about his threshold for concussions. And, and I was asking him about these tough cases where you're not really sure if it's a kind of a temporary issue or if it's a headache syndrome or what's going on. And he just talked about, you know, there's no golden test or there's nothing that's perfect. Sometimes you just have to watch, be patient, let the symptoms or the condition to develop, and then you'll get a better understanding, take all the pieces that you've got together, when did the hit occur, when did the symptoms occur, what are all the symptoms, and putting that all together. It kind of helped me to, to gain a better understanding of the overall diagnosis of concussion on the sideline. And then uh, certainly I asked him about the neurocognitive tests. Uh, we were talking about kind of the impact test that you, that you hear about or, or that many people utilize. And he just emphasized the fact that, hey, this is not a standalone test for diagnosis and it's not a standalone uh, test for return to play. And that perhaps it is being utilized by some in that way, but it's better to be used as a tool, uh, another piece of the puzzle, so to speak, in diagnosing and managing concussion. But we have to take all those pieces together in order to come up with our both diagnosis and treatment plan with return to play. So, Scott, uh, those are my takeaway points. I'm sure you have some as well. What did you think? Yeah, absolutely. That was just a phenomenal presentation that Dr. Kutcher gave us. Really great to have him on the podcast. Definitely, I picked up on the behavioral changes as being a red flag when you're trying to go through the history on these folks. And the fact that they don't even notice that they have a behavioral change. So it's really key to ask the people around them and get an idea on are they missing their assignments during the game? Are they facing the wrong direction? Are they doing things that are just abnormal for them that they're not picking up on? And then I thought it was really interesting talking about cognitive and f- physical rest. I've, I've really struggled with this. I mean, to have these guys, you know, what, what do you take away from them as part of this rest process? And it's good to know that they can use computers. They can text. They can watch TV and they can read, things like that. But what they really need to do is avoid activity that makes them lots worse. 
and there isn't a great numerical scale to give them to help kind of make that decision, but just letting them know, hey, if you're doing something that makes your symptoms a lot worse, you need to back off. That was really key for me. And I'll tell you, he definitely pointed out some great places to get more information from, uh, reading the Zurich consensus statement, looking at your national and local meetings, CME, et cetera. And then, of course, this uh, American Academy of Neurology meeting in the summer of 2014 on concussions. That sounds like it's going to be phenomenal. So thanks to Dr. Kutcher for taking the time out to meet with us today. And, of course, thank you all for tuning in. Remember, if you have any thoughts, comments, ideas for future episodes, you can get us at thesportsmedcast at gmail.com, thesportsmedcast at gmail.com. Thanks again. Look forward to talking to you all soon. Take care.